all you beautiful body bastards and welcome back to body ballads where we look at many of the forgotten hilarious and often dirty old songs of the past along the way we'll explore all those things that make life just a bit more interesting there's trickery infidelity loving drinking fighting and while we dig into these songs we'll talk about all kinds of stuff archetypes, history, folklore, and share the way these songs connect with the present. A fair warning before we begin, this show does discuss adult themes and topics, including violence, sex, and my own foul mouth. And as always, make sure to check the show notes for links, including thebodyballads.com, where you can share your creations with me and see the show transcripts and additional links if you're curious to learn more. And with that said, let's get to today's episode. Welcome back, everybody, and I officially have myths of impotence in my search history, and part of me is really interested in seeing what kind of insane ads I'm going to start getting. Usually, Google can't pin me down at all because I'm always using it to check for plagiarism and student work, so all kinds of random shit gets thrown in. This, though, is definitely an outlier. Anyways, today we'll be looking at sex and power, and sometimes the lack of it. There's no way to deny, though, that power is intricately linked when we're talking about sex. It's used for power over others. People seek power to get it. They abuse the power for sex when they can. Even in the most modest suburban home, there are intimate power plays between couples that happen through sex. So it is no surprise to anyone that historically there was a problem with employers or masters taking advantage of their power and forcing themselves on servants. It's a hidden archetype that normally hides inside larger plots, sort of saying, oh yeah, this thing happens. It wasn't uncommon, especially during large group gatherings where the wealthy would host dozens of people for, well, shooting shit, that sometimes some rich friend of the masters would also take advantage of the situation. Now, normally if the girl was lucky, she'd avoid pregnancy and just have to deal with I don't know, the trauma of rape. But if she was so unlucky to get pregnant or have someone find out, it would spell utter destruction to her chances. As a woman of lower class, she would be reliant on the father doing the right thing and setting her up with the child out of sight. You know, somewhat like Maria Martin last week. It was more likely she'd be thrown to the streets to fend for herself, which we've already talked about what happens in that case. Though the story of Seda Abe and her snoop snip is a bit different, but was still technically a master and maid story. When I attempt to look up anything written on this story archetype or even list of movies and stories where it happens, the main results are all Wattpad and other romance book categories. This trope is still really popular, though today it has a different kind of approach. In many aspects, Fifty Shades of Grey is such a story. The boss and the employee, the secretary, the maid, the power dynamic is still the same. It's insanely popular too, and not just in romance novels. The boss, secretary, employee is one of those tropes that appears a lot in films, including porn. Perhaps it's the naughty, not supposed to be done nature of it. It's one of those things that isn't exactly taboo like incest, but it is generally frowned upon as unethical. 
So I said many companies have rules against it because it does make it very easy and tempting to abuse the power. So I whenever quid, quid pro quo comes up, they tend to be sexual examples. And I know I can't be the only one who is so tired of having to do quid pro, quid pro quo training every year. Anyways, so instead, I'm going to look at a couple of ballads where the would-be seducer never gets what he wants, though for a very different reason. The first one we're going to look at is from the late 1600s and is called A Dialogue Between a Master and His Maid, which reads, Come hither, my pretty Sue, sit down by thy master's side. Said she these things I dare not do, my mistress she will chide. Thou knowest she is not within, her master he then replied. But Sue said to him again, I fear that my dame will chide. Dost thou think I would ever tell that we do in love reside? Quoth Sue, if she the plot should smell my mistress, she will chide. I'll give thee a golden purse, which thou shalt wear by thy side. Sweet master, do not tempt me thus. My mistress, she will chide. Oh, grant me but the liberty to handle thee like a bride. If this my mistress she should see, I'm sure she would scold and chide. Nay, likewise, he said to her, he'd always be on her side. I knew you will not hurt me, sir, but my mistress, she will chide. Thy skin is as white as snow, my love. I can never hide. Be kind to me and don't say no. Thy mistress shall not chide. I'll give thee a gay gold ring and deck thee with costly pride. As fine as flora in the spring. Thy mistress shall not chide. Come hither into my arms. Young Cupid will be thy guide. Let me taste those tempting charms. Thy mistress will not chide. To love thee I am inclined, nothing I prize beside. My Susan therefore be but kind, thy mistress shall not chide. Love, love let us enjoy the bliss. But Susan, she soon replied, Alas, if I my master kiss, my mistress she will chide. I'll keep thee from care and strife, let me but lie by thy side. Kind sir, I dare not for my life. My mistress, she will chide. My love, thou art charming fair. Then let me not be denied. Kind sir, quoth she, I pray forbear. My mistress, she will chide. He gave her a crown in hand, and she readily then complied, and did no more disputing stand, nor feared that her dame should chide who hid herself all the while, and heard their discourse beside. At length she did them both revile, and vowed she had cause to chide. The wife she did rant and roar, and would not the lass abide, but took and turned her out the door, and vowed she had cause to chide. And did on her husband frown, before he could slip aside, and with a ladle cracked his crown and vowed she would more than chide. And so 
I think today this song would be closest akin to a bad sketch comedy bit or a bad improv bit. The master's pressuring the girl too stupid to pay close enough attention to the, the master's too stupid, not the girl. Too stupid to pay close enough attention to who was around and gets caught by his wife who was has overheard everything. She comes roaring out from behind what I imagine to be curtains and goes chasing after the girl, throwing her out of the door in a slapstick manner, which is only escalated by her beating her husband with a ladle. You know what it makes me think of? <laughs> it makes me think of the landlady from Kung Fu Hustle. In case you've never seen this one, oh my god, do yourself a favor. I've included a link in the of the initial, like, what's called the pigsty alley scene and that comes to mind when i think about this song um but seriously i just rewatched it after doing this and it, uh, it's really great the link in the show notes i would suggest around starting around the three minute ten mark uh to get straight to the pure land lady hilarity anyway i'll probably put on the full movie by the end of the day to be honest Anyways, let's look at a ballad where the master was just a bit mm, too soft and smooth. And that's the Kentish Maiden or the Fumbling Ale Draper derided, which is also from the late 1600s. I was a modest maid of Kent who never knew what kissing meant until my master tempted me with gifts for my virginity. Long was I courted ere I'd yield, and when at last he won the field, he gave me a long kerchief fine, declaring that it should be mine. Likewise, a golden guinea bright, that he might lay with me one night. I granted his demand straightway, what alas alive could say him nay. He was right generous and free, bestowing such large gifts on me, yet I did such a conscience make that I would not his guinea take. My conscience said it was too much to take for just one single touch. And therefore, when he laid it down, I took no more than one poor crown. The which he gave me then with speed, and thus we lovingly agreed that he should have my maidenhead. I got new cording for my bed for fear the old ones they should break, which would a sad distraction make and cause a strange discovery. All of my masters loved to me. Clean sheets I likewise did provide. Nothing was wanting on my side. Yet when he to my lodging came, alas, he could not play the game. Our game was single rapier first. Now when he came to give the thrust, a pass at me could not be made, he having such a limber blade. I bid him to his weapon stand, and craved no favor at his hand. Yet he was forced to sneak away before the morning break of day. Thus was my expectations crossed, and my dear master's labor lost. Which grieved my very heart for full sore. Was ever made so balked before? When sorrow never comes alone. Soon after this, my dame did own the handkerchief which then I wore, saying that it was hers before. Then did she fly at me in brief and told me I had played the thief. Your words I score no thief am I, nor shall you catch me in a lie. This handkerchief not long ago my master did on me bestow. 
The night before with me he lay. Now where's the harm of this, I pray? The mistress flew and called me whore, and by the quaff she made the maid she tore. Must she forsooth my partner be, where there's no half enough for me? Dear mistress, be not in a rage. You spake the truth, I dare engage. For though all night by me he lay, he could not one sweet lesson play. But straight in wrath replied her dame, You saucy slut you are to blame. In letting him lie in your bed, suppose he'd gotten your maiden head. Forsooth, said she, had it been so, I might have proved my overthrow. But he can never hurt a maid with such a feeble limber blade. Man, if I didn't know better, I'd say this had been written by a woman. Whoever it was, I love that he is taken down by his own lack of being able to, well, get it up. So instead of going on about how much impotence is a huge economic force in our society, it is, I want to talk about Priapus, the Greek god of animal and crop fertility who was the son of Dionysus and Aphrodite. If his name sounds familiar, it's because his name is the root of the word Priapism, which is when your erection lasts longer than four hours and you should seek medical attention. We've heard all heard that little bit thrown into the commercials. So why is Priapus relevant? Well, he was in his womb, in, in the womb, not his womb, in the womb, <laughs> cursed by Hera because Paris said Aphrodite was more beautiful than her, which is just so typical of envious Hera. Seriously, the ancient Greeks didn't think highly of wives if Hera was their goddess. Anyways, she cursed him to always be horny, but also impotent and ugly. I know, right? What kind of shit is that? What kind of horrible, like that has got to be one of the worst curses ever. You're always horny, but you can't, you know, alleviate, whatever. Anyway, the fact that his father is the god of drink and revelry, Dionysus, is also a warning about what happens when you overdo it in drinking and partying. There's a reason that whiskey dick is a term commonly used, and it's a moment most full-grown adults have come across at least once in their life. So Priapus ends up eternally pent up, unable to release himself, which makes him perpetually horny. This buildup of unusable energy is one of the reasons he began to be considered the guardian of gardens and became a very popular god in the country areas of the Greek and Roman Empire. In the cities, he was more of a joke god, something to use to make fun of those who were unable to do their duties, which is odd because in all the images of him, him he is um, full mast. Pompeii is full of his images, largely because it was also full of brothels, something not too many know unless you're a weird archaeology nerd like I am. These images can be found easily, but in case you are more curious, I've linked the Wikipedia on the dirty Pompeii frescoes where you will see not just the Priapus images, but some of the other images that decorated the walls of these Roman brothels. Now, obviously be aware because they are NSFW 
very much so, but do provide an amazing study in human sexuality because some of the things depicted are still considered a bit on the scandalous side, such as male, male, female. Anyways, one of the story of him in particular reminds me of the ballads we just covered, and it's really the main one. It's where he tries to sneak up on a nymph of the woods to have his way with her. But her donkey or ass screamed out, waking her up, she runs off. Poor Priapus still gets nothing. Which in many ways reminds me of the brain done by both wives in discovering their husband's sad attempts. These wives also linked to Hera, preventing her husband from cheating, something Hera only wished she could do. Anybody familiar with Greek myth knows that Zeus got it on about everything. And as everything. I love myth. Anyways, so in some stories, Priapus kills the donkey, and that is why donkeys were traditionally sacrificed to him. But I think it has more to do with his agricultural nature. Donkeys are an essential part of any small family farm. Not all only are they able to carry supplies, but they are also highly protective and loyal. And today there are still, they are still used to protect herds, especially goats, sheep. Um, there are plenty of occasions where donkeys have killed wild dogs and coyotes to protect the herd. One image in particular always comes to mind, and that is an image of a donkey with a coyote in its mouth where it grabbed the coyote and, you know, basically broke its neck. So while city people, you know, like the donkey, city people like to kind of make fun of the donkey and, you know, it's an ass, it's useless, blah, blah, blah. Those people who've grown up in farming communities know they are very useful, loyal, wonderful animals. Also, don't mess with them. So what did men do back in the day to combat such issues? Not donkeys, but, you know, impotence. In ancient Greece and Rome, they would do things involving penis-like animals or animals that had links to virility, such as eating snakes, which is in the list of things done, of the things done. It's not, not that crazy. Eating a snake is by far the craziest impotence cure. In the 1200s, Friar Albertus Magnus wrote, if a wolf's penis is roasted in an oven, cut it into small pieces, and a small portion of this is chewed. The consumer will experience an immediate yen for sexual intercourse. Wolf penis. Yeah. Still. I mean, I guess it's up there. Anyways, in between then and now, all kinds of things were put forward, including eating sparrows and starfish to various herbal balms and remedies. There was also lots of eating of the penis of other powerful animals, ideas that still power the predatory poacher market of animals such as the rhino, whose horn is still considered a cure in many malls and some parts of the world. I think, though, the one of the most notable that really sticks out to me was Hedrick for Frederick Hollick, who in the 1700s asserted that cannabis was the cure as it restored desire and had no after effects. And let's be honest, of all the crazy solutions, this one probably had at least a chance of helping, especially if the cause was mental, such as performance anxiety. Of course, tying back in with Priapus and Dionysus, if you overdo it with the cannabis, you're going to run into the same problem. Now, while researching all of this, I also found out that Viagra was approved by the FDA on my birthday. 
but I'm not telling you which one because, you know, secrets. Anyways, that's really all I have for today is talking about that impotence talk. And anyways, as always, all my sources are linked in the show notes. So if you want to learn more, um, you know, check them out. Uh, and with that said, I hope to see you next time and stay saucy.